Uh, Professor Lehner is professor of theology at Marquette University and is an internationally known and recognized specialist in early modern theology, early modern religious history and historical theology. Thank you, Michael. Uh, from the late 15th to the early 20th centuries. Uh, he specializes in particular in the fields of early modern and modern Catholic reform. Uh, Professor Lehner received his Doctor of Theology from the University of Regensburg in 2006 and his Habilitation in History from Central European University in 2015. He is the main organizer of the Oxford Handbook of Early Modern Theology, 1600 to 1800, uh, the co-editor of Enlightenment in Catholic Europe, a transnational history, and has edited or co-edited 11 other books. He's the author of seven books, most recently On the Road to Vatican II, German Catholic Enlighteners and Reform of the Church, uh, The Catholic Enlightenment, The Forgotten Story of a Global Movement, and most recently of all, God is Not Nice, uh, a book that we would love to have you come back to speak on at some other point in the future. Uh, he has three more books in the pipeline. Uh, Professor Lehner's talk today is Catholic Reform, the Council of Trent, and the Catholic Enlightenment. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Lehner. Thank, Thank, Thank you very much for your kind words of introduction. And I just had to remember that one of the first trips as newlyweds, uh, my wife and I actually made to an event at Lumen Christi back in 2000 and, uh, 2003. Um, so that was uh, uh, nice, nice memories. So I'm, I'm very honored to be here and to talk about uh, the history of Catholic enlightenment and the continuity um, between the Council of Trent and the religious enlightenment that I see. Catholic theology after the Council of Trent is still something of a no-man's land. It's not only largely uncharted territory, but also exhibits the bomb craters caused by the artillery of all confessions. So that it is what is still visible of it has become a largely disfigured intellectual landscape. Research on the Catholic Enlightenment has, in my view, not continued the bombardment of Baroque theology, but if you want to use that term, but rather has motivated a more thorough understanding of the continuities and discontinuities between the Council of Trent and Tridentine theology and um, Vatican I. In fact, I believe that by showing continuities from the Tridentine reform to the 18th century, we can outline a small roadmap through this theological and intellectual landscape. It will hopefully not only become clear where the Catholic Enlightenment was innovative, but also where it relied on or was inspired by previous generations. After several decades of research which demonstrated that the overwhelming majority of Enlighteners were not anti-religious, that in fact France was more or less the exception of the and not the standard, the notion of a Catholic enlightenment has found an almost unchallenged home in historical scholarship. Uh, the Germans seem to be the exception of the rule here. I was just coming back from a conference there and we still had some, um, uh, quite some discussion about the, the nature of Catholic enlightenment. Yet nobody seems to ask the question 
about the theological relevance of Catholic enlightenment. What is it exactly? It falls into the 18th century and thus before the First Vatican Council. So was it just a prelude to the rejection of modernity at that council? Or was it a temporary alliance between the forces of modernization and the church? Or was it a late blooming of the Tridentine reform? Or was it a hybrid of two or all three of those? The first view seems to be utterly teleological and thus not very helpful. And certainly the experiences of the 18th century influenced the First Vatican Council, as well, by the way, the Second Vatican Council, but most historians are not aware that uh, in the acta of um, the Second Vatican Council, for example, the Synod of Pistoia is discussed. The ghosts of Catholic enlightenment are influencing also the uh, all of the uh, council fathers in the 1960s. But to understand a whole century of theological endeavor, the 18th century, as negligible, negative foreplay, is also academically indefensible. So what about the second option? And temporary, temporary alliance view. This put forth by Harm Klüting in particular sees correctly that for a short period of time, church leaders were open to new forms of thought, the Enlightenment, but it seems to give the Catholic Enlightenment too much of an episodic character and thus neglects the traits of continuity in which it was placed. Thus, I argue more for a version of number three of a hybrid, namely to see the Catholic Enlightenment as continuing the Tridentine spirit of reform while also taking Klüting's view of a temporary alliance with the utmost seriousness. So when I say the spirit of Trent, I do this intentionally because research has shown that the myth of Trent was much more influential than the actual documents, the texts of the council. Nevertheless, I think that the word myth, a term used by Wolfgang Reinhardt and Günther Wasilowski, is too strong as it seems to imply a chasm between the council itself and this myth. Although the reformist ideas of Trent were more loosely connected to the council, I do not see any explicit contradictions or a chasm that would justify denouncing it as a myth. And therefore, I prefer to speak about the spirit of Trent and not the myth of Trent. Moreover, I suggest taking the Catholic Enlightenment's self-identification as a reform movement more seriously. Even if many of its proponents were critical of the Council of Trent, they nevertheless held up the banner of reform loosely connected to the spirit of Trent and ultimately also with late medieval reform movements. If we understand the Catholic Enlightenment as a reform movement, it is easier to place it into the narrative of church history, I'm convinced. As every reform movement, it was a temporary answer as it had to deal with very specific challenges and opportunities. And like in every reform movement, one can identify fringes and thus radical elements and more moderate proponents of reform. Thus, such categorization seems more adequate to the dynamics of Catholic enlightenment than simply seeing it as an episode. 
by going, the, by going beyond the established literary canon of what Peter Gay in 1968 has looked upon as the Enlightenment writers, Locke, Kant, Voltaire, etc., historians in the last couple decades have discovered a little-known world of texts, practices, and themes where religion and modernity could journey hand in hand. Now a religious side of the Enlightenment has emerged that made talk about deism and anti-clericalism much more complicated. And David Sorkin, with his research on the religious enlightenment, he gave a talk here um, about seven years ago, uh, would be a, a main proponent of this framework, the paradigm of religious enlightenment. God, it was found, had not been pushed out of the equation, but maintained his space, yet often in transformed ways, and especially in the works of writers, nobody in the 20th century read anymore. The work of Hugh Trevor Roper, Robert Palmer, Bernard Plongeron, and David Sorkin testify to the success of this paradigm shift. Religious enlighteners in Judaism and Christianity thought about how to articulate the faith under new premises. This religious enlightenment was a spectrum of theologies interested in carrying out a dialogue between faith, reason, and contemporary culture. Consequently, it does not fit conventional categories, and it challenges established narratives. Some have tried to group its theologies under the umbrellas of either progressive or conservative thought, but have failed to establish this categorization in the Guild of Historians. Thus, I suggest a way out, a way beyond these politically charged terms, by offering an understanding of Catholic enlightenment that might also be a useful hermeneutic tool for other enlightenments. For example, the Orthodox enlightenment, which, uh, where we see more and more research um, about religious enlightenments in uh, the Orthodox churches of Russia uh, and Greece, for example. So as a good German, I uh, uh, have now some prolegomena about the term. After all, I wrote uh, uh, my dissertation on Immanuel Kant. So, Catholic Enlightenment was, in and of itself, a spectrum that comprised different forms of thought. Most of its proponents between 1714 and 1820 are best classified as moderates, favoring a modernization that compromised with tradition and reigning authorities, while a few more were radical and at the fringes of this group. And one aspect of a new book I'm writing is actually the history of the term moderation. It's not always clear what they mean by that, um, but it seems to be one major characteristic of Catholic enlightenment and a certain group of post-Tridentine theologians and philosophers embedded in the discussion about virtue and um, civili uh, civilization. The moderate, moderate's aim was first to use the newest achievements of philosophy and science to defend the dogmas of Catholic Christianity by explaining them in a new language, and second, to reconcile Catholicism with modern culture. If anything held this diverse uh, group of thinkers together, it was their belief that Catholicism had to modernize if it wanted to be a viable intellectual alternative to the persuasive arguments of the anti-clerical enlighteners, 
or as Peter Miller has stated, albeit about the 17th century, such modernization, quote, was the only possible perspective for anyone committed with equal integrity to curiosity and Christianity, end of quote. The term modernization does not appear in the 18th century texts, at least I haven't seen it. What is instead is used is the, is the term reform and the appeal to embrace new forms of thought. Catholic enlighteners differed among themselves as to how such a reform should be brought about. But unlike the reformers of the Tridentine era, they were not afraid of conceding the need for new approaches, even if they were called out as novatores. Perhaps it is here where we see the clearest difference to the Council of Trent and the Tridentine reformers, namely the willingness to go beyond what was known and established and use it for the reform of the church. So we have a new understanding of the word reform. It's not just bringing something back to its pristine shape, but using new tools and new forms um, in its place. In the 20th century, the term aggiornamento has been used as a synonym for reform that attempted to bring the church up to date through a compromise between a th a different theological factions. Yet what is usually forgotten is that the term's home was the spiritual theology of St. John the 23rd. We just celebrated his feast day a couple days ago. In the theology of John the 23rd, it means clearly salvaging a vital substance, a core, while leaving the superficial behind. In the language of Baroque scholasticism, which Angelo Roncalli knew very well, that was called a restauratio spiritualis, an instauratio, but also reformatio. While Tridentine theologians like Seripando would have rejected the term aggiornamento, if it only means verheutigung, bringing up to date, as John O'Malley rightly points out, I think they would have subscribed to the meaning John the 23rd gave it, namely as a spiritual and moral renovatio, renovation, renewal. And thus I'm inclined to follow Hubert Hedin, the great historian of the Council of Trent, when he puts St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Philip Neri and others in the camp of church reformers, whereas John O'Malley feels uncomfortable doing that. The reason for this is that Yedin remembers the Baroque treatises on spiritual life and the notion that every church reform must begin with the individual. True, St. Ignatius was not branded a reformator, as O'Malley states, and if he had been, he probably would have not survived the Inquisition. Let's just face that. But then why does the greatest Jesuit thinker of early modernity, Francisco Suarez, see his order, the Society of Jesus, as the divinely appointed tool for the, quote, instauratio ac perfectio morum. So the tool for the renewal and perfection of uh, morality, of mores. Such a moral transformation, predominantly of the curia, was, as O'Malley himself acknowledges, a main characteristic of the reform ideas in homilies preached at the papal court 
already in the 15th century. Thus, it makes really no sense to dismiss moral transformation and instauratio spiritualis as hesitant reform or as not belonging to reform at all. Also because such thinking continued late medieval reform movements. So you have in, uh, in a lot of scholarship the tendency to, to brand um, Tridentine reformers as hesitant, as conservative, or is not really wanting to reform because they believe you have to begin at the individual um, with church reform instead of uh, an institutional attempt. If this is true, then I think we have also to look at the often criticized moralistic side of the Catholic Enlightenment again. Was it perhaps the attempt to reform morals and moral sensibilities just like earlier reform movements? However, this time, not only with biblical imagery, like uh, Jan van Opstreet's uh, Pastor Bonus, but also with Enlightenment moral philosophy. Now, I'm not saying that I find 18th century moral philosophy uh, all that theologically convincing. My question here is more historical. Does it help us understand the motives and intentions of Catholic enlighteners better if we understand this movement as a reform movement? And I think that is the case. Yet, how can one express this desire for reform and the attempt to uh, bring about reform with new things with the will to hold on to one's tradition. A few years ago, more or less accidentally, I stumbled upon Jacques Maritain, who wrestled with the same question. And I found his explanation to be among the best and quite fitting also for the Catholic Enlightenment. In 1922, he claimed that Catholicism was simultaneously anti-modern and ultra-modern. It was anti-modern in its commitment to its own tradition, yet ultra-modern in its ability to adapt to new circumstances and times. The commitment to tradition had to be, in Maritain's eye, only be anti-modern insofar as modernity rejected doctrinal tradition. The latter he understood already as dynamic and opposed to traditionalism, or as Jaroslav Pelikan famously says, tradition is the living thought of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead thought of the living. To quote Jacques Maritain, if being ultra-modern is about saving all treasures modernity has accumulated and about receiving them vividly, if it is about loving the efforts of those who are seeking and desiring innovations, then we wish to be ultra-modern." End of quote. I like Meriton's expression because he reminds us not to judge history by our own expectations, but rather to understand it from its own time. Therefore, it would be wrong to label the Tridentine reforms as conservative timid at times, perhaps, but not conservative, unless one wants to smuggle some political agenda into one's um, historical accounts. To give an example what I mean, in 19th century English Whig history, um, I'm quoting Macaulay here, it was a commonplace to call the Council of Trent a masterpiece of deception. 
Through the council, the church had made its ecclesiastical institutions more efficient and reasserted its authoritarian principles. It appeared to modernize, but it really didn't, so Macaulay. That's the big deception. Such view, however, does not really understand the inner Catholic uh, tension that Maritain is speaking about. The tension of every reform movement of balancing reform, innovation, and continuity. And indeed, Catholic Baroque theology reasserted, uh, Baroque the theologians reasserted their own tradition in the confessional age and creatively reappropriated it. But why is such an approach excluded from having a place at the table of plural modernities? in the eyes of Whig historians. So why labeling Tridentine reformers as conservative, as you can see in many standard histories um, of the Reformation era? Now, if this, is, if this was all past history, it would not be worth mentioning. But these views are still widespread. One only has to open standard accounts of the Reformation. And we read there that only because Catholic reformers did not accept sola scriptura, they were conservative or idealistic. So why would the Catholic reformers of the 16th century, who believed in a past golden age of the church that was untarnished of abuse and fault and recoverable, be more conservative than their medieval counterparts? Let's say Savonarola, although nobody uses this term for him. Why would they be more idealistic than somebody believing in sola scriptura? Ultra-modern and anti-modern don't have to be contradictions if one acknowledges tensions between reform and tradition. So I'm, I'm very allergic to the anachronistic political labels, as you can see. Another reason why I think Maritain hit the mark is because he placed enough emphasis on personal reform. Many have downplayed the moral and spiritual rise of the church after the council or seen it as utterly anti-modern. Such views, however, underestimate the innovation of spiritual and pastoral theology. St. Ignatius Loyola, St. Francis de Sales, Vincent de Paul, Berul, Bennett Canfield, and many others are today acknowledged for their new forms of emphasizing personal holiness and conversion but also practical help for the marginalized. To label these anti-modern or conservative because they remain truthful to tradition leads to a gross misunderstanding of the inner life of early modern Catholicism. Such Catholics claim to restore and bring new life to the collapsed church, but they did not understand themselves as novatores, as people bringing new things to the table rather bringing, bringing renewal about of something that was lost. If we begin to understand this meaning of reform and its dynamics, I think we are also able to better understand the place of the Jewish Haskalah, the Jewish religious enlightenment, and the Russian Orthodox enlightenment as reform movements. Now, where does this leave the Catholic enlightenment now? Rather than using political or sociological categories, we should try to understand it as an ecclesial reform movement that intended reform in the framework of tradition. 
But of course, now we have to find out what do we mean by reform. So reform as a hermeneutic key. I'm convinced that the concept of reform is best to describe the Catholic Enlightenment of the 18th century because it entails the element of continuity and because contemporaries, even non-religious enlighteners, subscribe to the idea of reform. Gerard Ladner reminds us that for the theologians of the past, reform was never, quote, sterile return to a dead past, but rather the idea of free, intentional and ever perfectible multiple prolonged efforts to reassert and augment pre-existing forms, doctrines and values of the Christian religion. Basilius Faber uh, Thesaurus Eruditionis Scholastiche defines the verb reformare as instaurare sive in priorum aut potius meliore formam redigere. I apologize. Um, we learned Latin in fifth grade and I never got over the German pronunciation. <laughs> so my apologies. Thus it meant for him reshaping of an already existing entity for the sake of restoring it from its deformations to its original pristine reality or to a better form. Other Latin dictionaries of the time translate reformieren as corrigere errores to correct errors, or to bring back collapsed discipline, or to reconstruct a more laudable way of living. It is used as a synonym for emendation in continuity. For Catholic scholars in the time period, verb and noun had been used mainly for religious communities, so for religious orders, the reform of the Franciscans, for example. So even when applied to the reform of religious communities, it never included a break with the past, but rather continuity, even if the discipline which had to be reformed was described as utterly collapsed. After all, even if the mores were gone, the faith was still there. So reformatio and renovatio were also frequently invoked by medical doctors to describe healing as reversion and rejuvenation, and by spiritual authors to describe inner conversion and sanctification. Although such conversion meant the death of the old self, such imagery was far from taking up images of the plant or animal life cycle, as this would have meant a clear break of continuity through the death of the plant or the animal. Even pessimistic Tridentine reformers like Gile of Viterbo avoided such imagery for this very reason. For them, reform was a restoration. The Protestant reformers, however, had already a different understanding of reform, namely one of morals and faith, and thus referred to the restoration of something utterly lost. While Catholics were ready to concede the necessity of a reform in morals, reformatio in moribus, they would never concede a reformation in fide, in faith. And that was a main difference in understanding. So nevertheless, it would again be unfair and unhistorical to charge these Catholic reformers for this very stance as 
it happens in many standard books as conservative because they believed, like the medieval theologian Jean Gerson, in a celestial archetype of the church. The more the earthly church imitates the heavenly church, the more authentic it becomes. For Gerson, for example, despite all deformation and all decay, there is still a life-giving thread, a life-giving seat in the church and its hierarchical structure. And although Gerson equates Ecclesia Primitiva with Perfectio Christiana, he suggests, nevertheless, modern means of reform. His ideas for the reform of preaching, the administration of the sacraments, visitations of the bishops, education of the clergy, and so forth. So there is clear and implicit acknowledgement that you can't return simply to the past, but you have to find contemporary answers to contemporary crises. I think this becomes even more obvious when one pays close attention to the emphasis that he places on personal reform. So again, the historian in me just wonders, why would you call such uh, reform attempts conservative. doesn't make much sense to me. Let us also look at some more, some more early modern writers arguing for reform. Thomas de Villo, or better known as Cajetan, can, first, uh, can serve as first example. He was a humanist Thomist who through close philological reading went beyond Aquinas and cared deeply for the reform of his own order and the whole church. The fruit of this engagement were his biblical commentaries, neither loved by Catholics nor by Protestants for their new and idiosyncratic interpretations. And I might add, even in his own, in his own order, there's a, a beautiful comment by um, Cardinal uh, uh, Caterinus saying, uh, this man, uh, Cajetan, just nauseates me. I can't, can't read him. So the doctor of analogy suggested, as an example for reform, clerical marriage for the German territories to avoid the problem of empty churches and empty parish houses and the offering of the chalice at communion as a compromise to bring Lutherans back into the fold with the Catholic Church. When asked whether that should be also applied to Spain and other countries, he said, well, no, because we don't have a problem with Lutherans there. So he was quite, quite pragmatic. So he rejected a compromise in matters of faith, but he saw it possible in questions of religious practice and discipline. Such a frame of mind in the most sophisticated theologian of the era was clearly not traditionalist or oriented simply backwards, but rather espoused a creative fidelity and loyalty to the past. What the Catholic reformers wanted was to recover the vivacity of church life and saintliness, which by definition is always bound to time and context. Likewise, the newest doctor of the church, St. John of Avila, critical of the personal ambition of self-acclaimed church reformers, he writes in his beautiful and unfortunately not widely read book, Audi Filia, Quote, that they died without having accomplished this church reform proves how much their hearts were deceived and that it would have been much better for them 
to pay attention to their own reformation, reformacion. Juan de Avila emphasizes what most Spanish mystics stressed, namely that church reform had to begin with personal reformation. Only then God would bestow on sanctified life the power to reform the institution. Another aspect that in the discussion of Catholic reform seems to be constantly forgotten is that of scholarship. Scholarship was seen as an act of moral importance, of virtue. Now, if reform is the recovery of something lost, something good, scholarship is needed to detect it. The enormous attempts of religious orders like the Oratorians, the Jesuits, but also the Benedictines and Dominicans to revive the reading of the fathers and biblical studies have to be seen within this horizon. So even if we do not see earth-shattering reform agendas, we see reform practice, we see a reform in the spiritual life, they still remain part of a reform horizon. Matteo Ricci, the great uh, Jesuit missionary to China, beautifully summed this up, quote, the exposition and discussion of knowledge can help us review what has been learned and cause us to learn something new. It can help us gain a thorough understanding of mysteries and resolve doubts. He who strives hard and exhorts others to do the same is a person of extensive learning and one who is trustworthy. The way of goodness is inexhaustible, and therefore any man who learns to do good must be prepared to study throughout his life. Every day that he lives must be devoted to its study. Any man who says that he has reached his goal has simply not begun, and anyone who says he no longer wishes to make progress in goodness has reverted to evil." End of quote. So these different approaches of these reformers show us that Catholic reformers were engulfed in a dynamic process of restoration and reform that made use of new ideas and means and was in that regard, as Meriton says, quite ultra-modern. But they also were convinced that reform is God's work first, that only divine assistance could accomplish the plans for reform. In a partnership between human action and divine assistance, the hope for a holier church, they believed, could be realized. Therefore, such Catholic reform could never consciously break with the past insofar as it was part of holy tradition. But it enabled theologians, nevertheless, to develop means of discernment. Often the diminutive discerniculum is used, what counted to the former and what counted as probable scholarly opinion, which could change. So you have a, a strong tradition in Baroque theology to discern what is part of holy tradition and what is not. Um, something that theologians nowadays don't talk much about. And uh, only, uh, so if you have a, a, a school opinion, nobody's bound to subscribe to any school opinions and they can be freely discussed. Only what is uh, de fide or uh, de fide divina or de fide ecclesiastica uh, has been defined. 
Alfonso de Castro writes in his um, um, book against the heretics from 1534, he defends in this, uh, uh, in this instance the freedom of the theologian in all school opinions and ridicules the most miserable servitude, miseremum servitutum, of those who equate following Scotus or Aquinas with dogma. Imploring 2 Corinthians 10, he writes, quote, Yet indeed St. Paul has commanded us to captivate our intellect in obedience to Christ and not in obedience to a human. There is much more academic freedom, which is also a chapter in my new book in um, early modern Catholic theology than people actually think. And you have actually a discussion of what and how academic freedom in um, Catholic theology and philosophy um, should be exercised. A Catholic enlightener of the 18th century could have written these words of de Castro. Especially in this 18th century, the theological schools had petrified their opinions and often regarded them as settled doctrine of the church. And it was now the job of the enlighteners to show that these were just school opinions and nobody could be obliged to receive them as dogma. The Irish theologian Richard Arstikin, 1618 through 1693, wrote that without discernment, without discerning what is part of the faith and what is just theological discussion, zeal would become imprudent and fanatical. A generation later, the Italian Ludovico Muratori will echo his fears and write about this agenda for the Catholic Enlightenment, talking about imprudent zeal as part of a society and a Catholic theology that has lost its way. The Catholic Enlighteners of the 18th century stand in this tradition and have to be understood before this background. If one instead interprets them as allies of political powers, one does not do justice to their religious beliefs. That does not mean um, that I'm uh, bracketing their political alliances completely. I'm just saying that if you only focus on their political alignment, that you, that you do not get a, a, an appropriate picture um, of the inner life of Catholic enlightenment. The Catholic Enlighteners were part of a wider rejuvenated Tridentine movement, which argued for a re-evaluation of norms and practices, based catechesis on comprehension and genuine motives, while engaging fruitfully with modern thought and means outside the church, which marks also the difference to mere reform Catholicism. One must not forget that Immanuel Kant's philosophy was first positively received at Catholic universities. The Protestant departments in Germany were very, very critical. And only in, in 10, 20 years after the uh, publication of the Critique of Pure Reason, that uh, picture changes. In the 18th century, such reforms lead in Catholicism to a distancing from the ostentatious life of the Baroque by centering on a theology of work which regarded office and duty more meritorious than rituals. 
this uh, shift in theology has its own problems because it petrifies uh, gender stereotypes, as I'm showing in a, a new book that comes out in December on women, Catholicism, and enlightenment. Lastly, we have to mention the charge brought forth against Catholic enlighteners that many of their ideas were not revolutionary enough. Is this not just a warmed-up criticism waged against Trent? It seems to me to be on the same anachronistic level. If Catholic enlighteners stood in continuity with the medieval and early modern reformers, then they wanted to preserve the principles of Catholic theology and thus could not give them up or exchange them for others. Yet they believed in the assimilative or integrative power of Catholicism, the power to integrate new insights, methods, and thoughts. And such innovation had to be moderate, as Moratori says, and follows once again, uh, it's very interesting, the influence of Gerson in the 18th century. Um, I don't think anybody has seen this so far that zeal has to be built upon benevolence, discretion, and constancy. One problem that remains to be talked about is, can we really talk about a movement in Catholic enlightenment? The term movement, some will say, implies a common organizational feature, which critics would state lacked in the Catholic enlightenment. I would, however, like to challenge that notion Indeed, we don't have a uniform movement in front of us, but very much like Renaissance humanism, a network of friends. These enlighteners had similar patterns of loose organization. They understood themselves to be part of a religious republic of letters. Like Erasmus, these enlighteners believed that scholarly community and friendship go hand in hand. Discourse between peers built the habitus of friendship as a virtue, thus not only believing in the formative power of texts, but also in the act of interpretation. The scholarly network of people like Werkmeister, Muratori, Vitola, Rautenstrauch, overcame the bifurcation between rational and effective knowledge, criticized the standard theologies of the time, and instead searched for new ways of preaching and understanding the Gospels. Could we not see this embeddedness in the practice of the Republic of Letters um, as an organizing principle of Catholic enlightenment? The fact that non-Catholics would not accept Catholic enlighteners, especially Jesuits, as members of this society should not surprise us because um, uh, um, men in this time were still judged by a number of religious stereotypes. It seems to me that Catholic enlighteners who participated in the Republic of Letters were for the most part not only interested in scholarly output and mutual courtesy, but engaged in a search for truth as being transcendental. Faith and religion were in their focus and not at the margins. They were not ex exceptions as many members of the Republic were ministers who held strongly to political and religious beliefs. The fact that Catholic enlighteners cared for the Republic of Letters can be seen from the wide discussion of moderation in disputations. <laughs> Concerned about the declining climate of academic speech already in the 17th century, Catholics had formulated rules 
for the moral conduct in academic disputations. This is again um, uh, mind-blowing for me that uh, this was never really discussed much. Quote, uh, I'm quoting, whom am I quoting here? Um, uh, Goldgar's wonderful study. Uh, moderation as behavior was the key for if everyone was moderate, then the con community could continue to function happily, end of quote. Especially in exchange with, with non-members of one's church, one tended to set confessional differences aside, unless there was a very specific disputation topic. By connecting with each other, Catholic enlighteners reinforced their reform agenda. This was not only about the exchange of information, but also a way of self-protection against ecclesial persecution and an act of improving discernment. By conversing with many different viewpoints, one exposed one's mind to a diversity of opinions. This diversity was useful because it provided an opportunity to sharpen the capacity to discern between essential and conventional. And thus religion was not superseded in this religious republic, enlightenment, uh, republic of letters, but was very much at the center. We even have um, a republic uh, of letters among the Jansenists that won a recent book called A Republic of Grace, uh, an enormously important network of correspondence. But let me come to the end. I hope I was able to show some convincing traits of continuity between Tridentine and Catholic reformers, and thus show the usefulness of the term reform as a hermeneutic concept to better understand the dynamics of this diverse movement. We should not interpret Catholic Enlightenment or early modern scholasticism through the experience of 19th or 20th century Catholicism, nor through the lenses of the Protestant Reformations. If we instead use the advice of John XXIII, who opined that the church today needed its own Tridentine movement, its own Tridentine moment, we begin to understand that reform is never a break with the past, but always a renewal in Christ. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>